We'll take your Bibles and open to Matthew 6. That's where we're at as we study the Lord's Prayer together. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. We prayed it together already today. We're going to look at it again. This is Jesus' model prayer for us all. You remember the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, okay, and gave them this as a model for prayer. And he gave us this model, not uh, as a mantra to repeat mindlessly, just to say these words. He didn't say, pray this. He said, pray like this. So we're meant to learn from this model, abstract the principles out of it, and, and, and have that be the shape then of our own prayer life. Go off of this as a foundation, as a scaffold for our life, for our prayer life, and pray like this. So we're taking our time to go slowly. If we just needed to recite it, we would just memorize it and move on. But we need to go slowly to understand what it means so we can take these ideas and incorporate them into our own conversations with God. So we're taking time to figure out what each phrase means, and we're going bit by bit. So today we're going to focus on the phrase, hallowed be your name. We'll read the whole thing together first. Um, So please follow along in your Bibles as I read Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the Lord's Prayer. And I mentioned last week that it breaks down pretty neatly into seven units. Uh, The first unit we looked at last week, that invocation, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. We saw that that invocation prepares us for prayer. It reminds us that, first of all, we're about to have a supernatural encounter. When we come in prayer, we're going to have a supernatural encounter. It says, our Father in heaven. We're talking with God in heaven. But at the same time, we're not afraid. We come with great confidence because we, we come our Father. We're praying to our Father. We're praying to the God who loves us, who cares for us like a father. He's, he's, he's good, and we, we love him, and he cares for us, so we're praying our Father. And we also saw that we're praying our Father. That is, together. We're praying together. This is a communal prayer. It's so that when we pray, it's, it's actually good and normal to pray with other people, to pray together. Uh, especially when you're starting to pray, it's great to pray with another person. It helps you to learn, helps you to grow, um, but not just when you start to pray. Some of my favorite times of prayer, my richest prayers, are when I'm praying with another person or a couple other people. So this is how we begin to pray, pray together to our Father, expecting a supernatural encounter. That's the first unit. Now the next three units that we see in verse uh, 9 and 10, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, that's where we're going to start studying today. We're going to spend a week on each of those, and then we'll wrap, wrap up with a week on each of the final three requests. Uh, give us daily bread, forgive our debts, and lead us not into temptation. Uh, but here's the frustrating thing about this approach, this slow approach. Uh, it's going to be Christmas before we get to the part of prayer where we actually ask God for the things that we want. Okay? So the, the part of prayer that we usually think of as prayer, uh, where we ask God to do stuff for us, it's going to be four weeks. Right? That's, that's way down there in the, in the daily bread section. Um, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, it, it's, it's, you know, hallowed be your name first, then kingdom come, then will be done, and then we can start talking about daily bread, where we usually ask for things like, you know, help grandma get better and keep us safe as we travel, um, those sorts of things. 
But before we get to those things, Jesus is telling us there's some stuff you need to talk about first. Before you start to ask for things for yourself, it's good to to think about the heart of God and ask Him about things that He is concerned about. Every time I think about that, it reminds me of the time that that Jen and I spent when we were living with my sister and her family before we had kids. We just graduated out of college, um, and I was working in the Chicago suburbs, and we were living with my sister for a little while and her five kids. Um, It was a lot of fun. One of my nephews at that time was probably about six years old, and he loved this video game on the PlayStation that was a Toy Story video game. It's Toy Story. And it was just a little too advanced for him to play by himself, so he always wanted to play with me. And so uh, every day when I got home from work after driving about 45 minutes to an hour in Chicago traffic, I walk in the door and he would meet me at the door. He would say, hey, Uncle Dan, want to play Toy Story? First thing I got every day as I walked into the house. Um, and I enjoyed the game. It was fun. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed uh, my nephew. But I told him after a few days of this, you know what, it, buddy, it, just, it, feels like, it feels like you're just trying to get something from me, right? Like, I just walk in the door. I don't even have a chance to put down my briefcase. And the first thing, you just say, hey, Uncle Daniel, play uh, Toy Story with me. I say, you know, it, it would maybe help me just a little bit if you would say, uh, you know, if you just first, if you just ask me how my day was, right? Before you ask me to play this you just ask me how my day is, and that would be great. So the next day when I got home, he greeted me at the door, and he said, Hey, Dan, how's your day? You want to play Toy Story? <laughs> okay, which was an improvement? <laughs> it was an improvement. And I hope that we can make that level of improvement as we look at the Lord's Prayer together, that, that as we approach God, we can maybe have a little bit of improvement and, and not just come to Him always first with just, Hey, here's, hey, hey God, here's, here's what I need. Here's what I need. Here's what I'm coming with today. But just, just stop for a second and say, now, is there something on your heart that I should be asking for? Is there something I'm on, you know, how do I take interest in you and what's going on with you before I run to the things that are on my list of pressing needs? And that's what this first section of the Lord's Prayer is. It, it's, it's these three petitions where, where God is saying, Here, here's the stuff on my heart. Here's the way that you can show interest in me before you run to the things that are, uh, that are on your heart. Now, you know, Jesus is saying the things that you care about are important. There is a place where we get to ask about all the stuff that, that we care about. That is important. But before we get there, he says, let's focus now on some things that are on God's heart. So what are these things that we want to pray for? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk first just generally about the three things together. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we'll focus in on the first one. So what is the equivalent of us coming to God and asking him about his day? Uh, the first thing we should pray for is pray that earth would become more like heaven. Okay, that's the first thing we want to pray for. Pray that earth would become more like heaven. That's my attempt to summarize what these first three petitions are about. What, what do these have in common? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. All of these are ways of us asking God that earth would become more like heaven. Okay, and I'm getting this primarily from the phrase at the end of verse 10, where it says, on earth as it is in heaven. I think typically when we recite the Lord's Prayer or when we look at it, we think of that phrase as only applying to the last line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, That's how I'm used to to reading it, too. Um, And partly it's because of the way that it's been punctuated in our English versions, like the way the punctuation works. Um, You know, when you look at it, typically... In verse 9, you'll find a period at the end of that. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, period. And then in verse 10, you may find either a comma or a period, even after your kingdom come. 
and then your will be done, comma, on earth as it is in heaven. So the way it's, it's punctuated uh, tends to, to suggest to us that we should read these as separate ideas. Uh, but when I slowed down this week, and I reread it in, in the Greek and looked at what various commentators had to say about this, uh, I was reminded uh, that the original New Testament does not have punctuation marks. Okay? These are things that are added later to try to be helpful for us to understand what's there. Um, but there's no punctuation in the New Testament. Uh, so the periods and the commas that you see are not necessarily inspired, and, and that means that these are not necessarily three different sentences. In fact, it's very easy to read them as three connected ideas. Uh, with, you could just picture a comma in there after each phrase. So, our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed, comma. May your kingdom come, comma. May your will be done, comma. All of these on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so grammatically, it would be like me saying, uh, I'm going to pack for vacation, and I'd like swim trunks, a t-shirt, and my sandals in the suitcase. Now, I'm not saying I want my t-shirt and swim trunks over here. I, I want a t-shirt and swim trunks, and then in my suitcase, I want my sandals, right? As if it's a third thing that's in a separate, separate category. I'm saying about these three things. I want a t-shirt, swimsuit, and sandals, all of these in my suitcase, in the same way, I think you can very easily and faithfully read this, uh, this prayer as a series of three things. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done, all of these things on earth as it is in heaven. So we want God's name to be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. We want his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the main idea that Jesus wants us to stop and think about before we rush into our desires and things that we want to happen. He says, first, stop and think about how are things being done in heaven? How is God being glorified in heaven? How is he being obeyed in heaven? And pray that that would happen on earth in the same way that it's done in heaven. That's how we start our prayers. May earth be more like heaven. Now, what would that mean for earth to be more like heaven? I think it means as we look at heaven, we look at the way that things are done in heaven, the way that, that things are being uh, handled, the way that angels and, and, and the glorified saints in heaven are acting, we, we look at that and think, that would be great if that sort of behavior was happening here on earth. Um, so as an example of, of this idea of something in one place becoming like somewhere else, uh, when I was in Guatemala a couple weeks ago, uh, there was one big thing that I wished were done in Guatemala as it was done in America. Uh, now, I, I, I liked it a lot. I had a great time. Uh, the people were great. The food was great. The scenery was great. Um, but there was just one thing that I wish was done in Guatemala the way it's done in America. And that is the way that they treat their drinking water. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the, spe what the specifics are um, as to why it's the way it is. Um, but I know that I can't drink the water from the tap there like I can here. When I drink the water from the tap here, totally fine. When I drink the water from the tap there, violently ill. Okay. So there's something going on. They're not doing the same sort of things with water that we're doing here. And so what do I want? I want the water to be treated in Guatemala as it is in America. I'm not saying Guatemala has to become completely like America. I'm not saying that people have to leave Guatemala and become Americans. I'm just saying this one thing, I would love the way that it's done here to be done there in that way so that I wouldn't get sick when I drink the water. Now, in the same way, that means uh, when regards to this prayer, when we pray that things will be done on earth as they are in heaven, it's not that we're praying that earth would become heaven or that we would all be taken away from earth to go to heaven, 
but we're saying there are things about heaven that are done right. And we want those things to become the things that we do here on earth too. We see what's happening in heaven and we say, may that also happen in the same way here on earth. Because when we look at earth, we see that things are not going well. We see that things are uh, going quite poorly, that there's all sorts of trouble and heartache and sin. But the way we do things on earth are not right. And so we say, Lord, may these things that we see happening in heaven, may those be true on earth. That's the big idea of the opening section. Before we run to our concerns, God wants us to make big prayers, to look at what's wrong with the world, and, and to not hide from it, to not ignore it, but to say, Father, before I get to my stuff, could you please do something about this? You know, Father, please, you, you, you see the way we're living here on earth, you see the dysfunction, you see the sinfulness, I see what's going on in heaven, I see how great that is. Would you make earth in those ways more like heaven? Please, please do that. And he gives us three specific requests, three specific ways that we want earth to become more like heaven. And look at the first one today. Hallowed be your name. So when we pray for earth to be more like heaven, this means, first of all, that we're praying, this is my way of putting it, we're praying that everyone would give God the praise that he deserves. So that's what this really means. So we're praying that everyone would give God the praise that he deserves. We pray, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, now, I do have to confess that when I was a kid and I heard the Lord's Prayer and recited the Lord's Prayer, I drastically misunderstood this first line. I did not know the word hallowed. I only knew the word hallowed with an O, right? Like hollowed out, like to be made empty. And so I did not understand what that had to do with God's name. How do you hollow God's name? How do you... How do you dig out the center of it so that it's empty? I didn't get it, so it just didn't make any sense to me. Uh, it confused me. And maybe you're confused too. May I just cleared something up for you? If that's, if that's true, that's great. Uh, it's not hollowed with an O, it's an A. Uh, but even still, that's not a word that we use a lot. So let's take a little time to understand what does that mean, to hollow something. Probably in our common usage, you only ever heard it referred to hollowed ground, like a cemetery um, or a war memorial. That's how Abraham Lincoln used it in the Gettysburg Address when he was given a speech at this, uh, at this uh, battlefield where countless men had, had given their lives in, in fighting for uh, the Civil War. Um, he said, these, you, you recognize these words, famous words. He said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And here's the key part. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. You get the key phrase there? It says, so we can't consecrate this, we can't dedicate it, we can't hollow this ground. Why? Because it's already been hollowed by the sacrifice of those who died here. So what he's saying is that, that their death on this field has now made this ground special. It's not an open field just like any other field, right? You don't, you don't treat it like any other field. You don't go to the battlefield in Gettysburg and have a flag football game, right? What you might do in another normal, in an open field, you'll say, well, let's just play flag football. We can play that here, nothing wrong with that. 
But you don't do that at Gettysburg because it's special. You treat it as special. You've hollowed it because it's been hollowed. It's been set apart. And that's what Jesus is saying we do with the name of God. We should pray that it would be hollowed, that it would be set apart, that it would be treated as special, recognized as special and treated as such. That God's name isn't like any other name, that God himself isn't like anyone else. And he deserves to be treated differently. That's what it means to hollow something, to set it apart, to treat it differently, to treat it as special. He says, hallowed be your name. But that's only half of it, right? Because it's okay, we understand what hallowed means, to set it apart. But what is this name thing? What name are we talking about? What do we mean when we say, hallowed be your name? Uh, first of all, you just need to understand that God, the, the, the word God, G-O-D, is not God's name. It's more of a title. That's descriptive. He is a God. He's the God. Right? It's kind of like if you go to the hospital and you've got a doctor and you say, doctor, right? That's not the doctor's name, probably. Uh, probably his name, like Jim or Susan or whatever, right? They've got a name, but the doctor is their job. It's their title. It's, it's their function. And you can refer to them by that. And they, they answer to that. And, and it's appropriate, right? You say, doctor, it's not their name. That's what God is, the word God, G-O-D. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a function, it's a description, it's who he is, it's what he is. He's a God, he's the God. And so we can call him God. But he has a name. He actually has a personal name. And we learn that name in Exodus 3. So it's, it's, go ahead and turn to Exodus. We'll be in here in a couple passages. So it's worth turning in your Bible. So Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And in Exodus chapter 3, we learn... God's name, um, as God is commissioning Moses at the burning bush, and he says to, uh, sends Moses to go back to Egypt to bring the people out of slavery, uh, and Moses hears this command, he's got a question for God, what do I call you? When the people ask me, who has sent me, what do I say? What's your name? So this is Exodus three thirteen. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations all right. The Lord, he says, verse 15, the Lord. So he gives him his name. And he answers Moses' question in two ways. Um, and in the original language, in the Hebrew, it's a play on words, what he does here. So first he tells them, say, I am has sent you. So that's in verse 14. He says, I am has sent me to you. Um, and then in verse 15, he says, Say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me. So he says, tell them I am. Say my name is I am. But then in verse 15 he says, say my name is the Lord. Okay? Now in English, those sound very different to each other, from each other. But in Hebrew, they're very similar. So the word for I am is hayah. So you can think like karate, like hayah. Right? Uh, and the name of God that, that we translate here as Lord is Yahweh. Right? So hayah and Yahweh. So it's kind of this, this plan words. The first word, the first name he gives him is more of his character. He says, who, who am I? I am. That's who I am. I'm the one who exists. I'm God. And then he gives a personal name, 
which is the Lord, Yahweh. And it's, and it's, a, it's like a pun. It's like a play on words because they're very similar. So at the risk of, of being a little sacrilegious, um, it's, it's like that joke where you say, what do you call a man who's floating in the water? Bob, yes, right? Call him Bob. You'll get it eventually, right? Uh, the first, it's a pun, right? Because in the first sense, he's Bob's, right? It's what he does. It's descriptive of what's happening. He's a guy who Bob's. In the second sense, it's a name. He's, he is Bob. That's what's going on here. God's, God's giving two sides. He's saying, first of all, here's my, my, my name, Hayah, I am. So it's who I am. I'm, I'm the God who exists. That's who sent you, the I am. Then he gives his name, Yahweh. Yahweh, I am God. That's actually just the short form of his name. He's got a longer version of his name that shows up in Exodus 34. So go ahead and flip there. It's a really, really long name. Um, you may have noticed this week that uh, Prince Harry of England got engaged. You may not have known that a Prince Harry even existed. That's fine. Uh, but I read a couple news stories. I didn't know a lot about this guy. Um, but uh, what really surprised me about Prince Harry was that he has a very long name. Okay, so Harry, not his real name. Um, probably makes sense. It's Henry, is what his, his, his real name is. But his full name is really long. I thought comically long. His full name is Henry Charles Albert David Mountbatten Windsor. Okay? So three middle names and then a hyphenated last name. Henry Charles Albert David Mountbatten Windsor. It's a long name. Um, but every part of that name tells a bit of the story of his, his heritage and his family and his history, and it kind of lets you know more about who this guy is. In the same way, God's name, is his full name is really long, longer than that. But it tells you important things about him, about his character. In Exodus 34, we've got this scene where Moses is talking with God again, and he asks God to, to show him his glory. He wants to really see God in all his glory. God says, I can't let you do that, but I'll put you in a cave, I'll cover you up, I'll pass by, and when I do, I will declare my name to you. And in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we get God declaring his full name. It says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's his name. His name is not just the first part. It's not just him saying, the Lord, the Lord, that's my name, and then let me tell you a little bit about myself. He says, no, this is my name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's his name. That's who God is. And that's what we see. It's not, it's not just a name, like you know, a handle that you give somebody so you can call them and, they, and they'll turn their head when they hear it. It's a description of his character. And two huge things about God's character become clear when you look at his name as he reveals it to Moses. First, he's merciful. You see that in verses 6 and 7, right? He starts out, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And you hear the mercy there? This is who God is. Is his name. And in case you're confused, Exodus is in the Old Testament. Okay? In case you were wondering that, sometimes people think, oh, the, 
the God of the Old Testament so, you know, so, so harsh and so, so judgmental. You know, it's only until you get to the New Testament that you encounter the God of love. No, sorry. <laughs> Same God through both Testaments. This is the Old Testament. God is love. God is merciful. He's gracious. He forgives sin. He's slow to anger. That's who he is. That's his name. But at the same time, he's also just. So he's merciful and he's just. Verse 7, second half. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God does not clear the guilty. He doesn't let guilty people just get off scot-free. Those who do evil will be punished, which is also good news. Right? If, if all this never-ending wave of, of sexual harassment allegations you know, in the news teaches us anything, it's that it's a good thing when bad guys get caught and punished. We want that. We don't like it when people get a free pass, when they just let their sins just go. It's not a big deal. No, we don't like that. That's not good. And God doesn't do that. God doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. He makes them pay, and that's part of his character. That's his nature. It's his name. But of course, there's a tension there. How is this possible? And, and it's right there in verse 7. How are these two things possible? Uh, at the end of verse, or in the kind of middle of verse 7, well, I guess, okay, at the beginning, it says, uh, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How do you do that? Isn't forgiving sin by definition clearing the guilty? How can God be both loving and merciful and just punishing sin? And that's a tension that drives the whole Old Testament. See, I see both of these sides of the character of God. How can he be both? How can he do both? Pick one. That's where that division comes in between the God of the Old Testament and New Testament. You can't handle it. He said, no, there must be, must be just in the Old Testament and loving in the New Testament. No, he's loving and just in the New and Old Testament at the same time. How? The answer, of course, is Jesus. It's Jesus. You see, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he died in the place of guilty people. So he didn't deserve to die, but our sins, your sins and mine, were placed on him so that at that moment in the cross, our sins were being punished. So God is just. He is punishing sin. They are, he's not passing by our sins. He's not taking them lightly. They're so serious that Jesus had to die to pay for them. He's absolutely just. But at the same time, because Jesus died in our place to take our sins for us, God is free to be merciful to sinners like you and me, forgiving our sin and iniquity, showing mercy and love and faithfulness. God can do both. He reveals both sides of his character in the cross in Jesus Christ. So if you want to know the essence of the character of God, if you want to know what his name is, look at the cross. At the cross is clearly displayed his mercy towards sinners and his justice towards sin. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, what are we praying? We're praying that God's name would be set apart, would be recognized as holy. And what's his name? It's his character revealed in the cross. It's his mercy towards sinners. It's his justice against sin. And so we pray that he would get the glory and the praise and the honor that is due to him because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Hallowed be the merciful and just name of God revealed in Jesus. That's what we're praying. 
And we're praying that that would be done on earth as it is in heaven because you know that's what's happening in heaven right now is the hollowing of the name of God in the person of Jesus. We studied this in depth a while ago, but look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. I'm going to read verses 6 through 14. I want you to see what it looks like for God's name to be hallowed in heaven. Revelation 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and, and wealth and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's, that's, that's how the name of God is being hallowed in heaven. And our prayer is that that would become more of the reality here on earth. Right? So, so we're praying that more and more what happens on earth is what's already going on in heaven. That, that more and more we would just be praying as people... Uh, you know, giving glory to, to, to Jesus for what he's done, that, that just like the angels, the thousands of angels around the throne are saying, glory to the Lamb, worthy the Lamb who was slain. So they're singing about his mercy and his justice and his victory over sin, that we would be doing the same thing here on earth. That God's people would be gathering together and giving praise and honor to his name. See, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is is we're praying for worship. The first thing we ask God is is that he would get more worship. We're praying that everyone would give God the praise that he deserves. I mean, the the scene in heaven that we just read about, that's what should be happening, right? You realize that. That's what should be happening here on earth. Every single person should be bowing their knee to God and giving great praise to Jesus for his sacrifice for us. But of course, it's not what happens, is it? Not even among Christians is that what happens. And so our prayer is that that would change, that we would turn from that, uh, that lack of worship to become worshipers. That we, as Christians, would, would see afresh the glory of Christ dying on the cross for our sins and give glory and praise to God. And that people who are not yet Christians, who are not yet in the fold, would become worshipers. That they would see the glory of God and they would, too, uh, join in the praise of Jesus as he's revealed his character on the cross. We want to pray for that because worship is the heart of everything. You know, all the problems that we see in this world come down to a problem of worship. Right? Sometimes we think the big problem is that oh, we just don't have enough education. 
or we don't have the right technology. If we could just invent the right technology, then we'll solve all our problems. Or, um, you know, if we, if we just had the right laws or fixed the income inequality, then all the problems would be better. But none of those are the solution because none of those address the real problem. The real problem is worship. Every single one of us was created to have a relationship with God and we're meant to function with God in the center of our lives. I've given this illustration before. It's just so helpful, I think. You know, it's like a solar system and in the center of the solar system is the sun and it's the most massive object in the solar system and because it's the most massive object in the solar system, it keeps all the other things functioning in the right orbits. They don't crash into each other because they're all held in place by the sun. Right, Brian, right? This is right. Our astronomy professor said, yeah, that's right. Okay. What would happen if you took the sun out of the center of the solar system and changed places with Neptune? It'd be a disaster. It'd be a disaster. If you try to put something less massive in the center, all the planets would spin out of order. They would crash into each other. It'd be mass chaos. And that's what happens when we don't worship God the way we ought to. He's the sun. He's the massive center of your universe, of your solar system. And if you have him in the center of your life, if the most massive thing, most important thing is the most important thing, everything else functions rightly. Your family works right. Your career works right. Not that life is perfect, but it, just, it functions properly. But if you take something else, even a good thing, like your family, and you try to put that in the center of your life, make that the object of your worship, everything gets destroyed. Because you weren't designed to worship your family. You're designed to worship God. Romans one twenty one puts it this way. It says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the problem with the world, is that we've taken the glory of God and we've exchanged it for the glory of other things, whether it's animals or, or, uh, or people or our dreams, our careers, uh, our pleasures. And when we take the glory of God and we exchange it for other things, if we hollow our family over God, if we hollow our money over God, that's the root of our problems. So what do we need? What's the big thing that we need God to do? We need God to work in our hearts and the hearts of others that we would worship him rightly. And that's the very thing Jesus says, pray for first. Before you get to anywhere else, pray about worship. Pray that the name of God would be hallowed. Pray that people would repent of idolatry. That we would repent of worshiping ourselves and that we worship him. And if we did that, if every human heart bowed the knee to Jesus, it would solve all of our problems overnight. So pray. How do we pray this? Pray for yourself. Pray for yourself as you go through the Lord's Prayer. You pray, hallowed be your name. Say, Father, please help me to see Jesus afresh. Help me to see the character of your mercy and your justice in the cross. Help me to treasure Jesus more than anything, to put him back in the center, put you in the center so I love you more than anything. Right? So part of praying, hallowed be your name, is personal. You say, Lord, help me to hallow your name and even just begin to praise God and, and, and do that. But part of it is also for others. And so as you pray, hallowed be your name, pray for others, that God would convert enemies into worshipers. Okay? Pray that God would take enemies and make them worshipers, that he would change the hearts of unbelievers. 
that they would become believers, that, that his name would be hallowed as more and more people become Christians. They see the beauty of Jesus, the Lamb of God slain for their sins. And they give glory to him for that. That's what it means for his name to be hallowed. So when we pray this week, when we practice, we want to keep that in mind. Look in your uh, note-taking outlines for the practice plan this week. I hope you're doing this. If you haven't been, just start. Don't, don't feel like you've, you've lost it and you can't start. Just go ahead and start this week. Spend time practicing your prayers. And this week we want to practice on hallowing the name of God. How do we do that? Let's stick with the same routine. So start by setting a timer for seven minutes. Ask God, teach me to pray. Read through the Lord's Prayer. And then let's focus on this. First, for yourself, spend time praising God, especially for the cross. Okay, that's your personal practice of hallowing the name of God. Spend time just praising for the cross, thinking about the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the mercy of God towards you, a sinner. Hallow his name personally. And then pray specifically for a non-Christian. So you know non-Christians, I know you do. Find one, pick one, and pray for that person specifically that they would become a worshiper of God. Pray that they would be changed from an enemy to a worshiper, that they would begin to hallow God's name. Hallowed be your name in that person's life, Lord. May you do a work in their heart. And then whatever time you have left, talk to God about whatever's on your heart. If you run out of things to say, sit in silence until the timer goes off. As we keep doing this, we're going to keep learning how to pray. Let's pray this week that God's name would be hallowed. Let's pray. Father, I just keep praying. just want to keep praying. Um, join with this congregation now in, in this prayer. Hallowed be your name. Not my name, not our names, not our desires first. No, your desire first. And we pray for our own lives. Lord, make us worshipers of you. We repent of the many things that we've placed in the center of our lives. We, we just want to get rid of those and pray, pray that you would take the center again. And we pray for our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, our classmates, the people that we know that do not know you, that do not worship you, that exchange your glory for the glory of idols. Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed in their life, that they would see the glory of Jesus, the Lamb slain for their sins, and they would give you praise. Father, make many worshipers this week and the months to come. Hallowed be your name. Amen.